Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, I'm talking with John Norton, with whom we've discussed over the years many aspects of technology and politics, and we are going to try and look in the round at what's the next big thing. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading review of culture and ideas. And the LRB is returning to first principles with their latest exclusive offer for Talking Politics listeners. Get 12 issues of the magazine for just £12 and they'll also send you one of their surprisingly famous tote bags, acclaimed by the likes of New York Magazine and Vice. Just use the URL mylrb.co.uk slash talkingbag. That's mylrb.co.uk slash talking bag. John is the, among many other things, technology correspondent for The Observer. You can read his column there every week. John, we've probably touch base on some of these questions more often than we care to remember over the last few years. But we haven't talked about it on Talking Politics for a while. And we're going to try and look as big as we can at how some of the different questions about technology and politics fit together. So I'm going to start by asking about something I don't think we've ever discussed before, which is the metaverse. You tend to hear about things long before the rest of us do. I can't remember when I first saw the phrase, but probably, I'm guessing, six to eight months ago. Can you remember where you were (laughs) when you first heard someone or read someone say the metaverse? Well, I can't remember where I was, but I can remember when. Uh, in 1992. That is further back than me. When Neil Stevenson's novel Snow Crash was published, because the metaverse plays a key role in that dystopian sci-fi novel. It's a very good book. It kind of peers into the, I guess, the midterm future. And it's a future in which the United States, as we know it, has disintegrated. Or at any rate, the the government of the United States has disintegrated. It's, it's now sequestered in occasional sort of... Um, gated enclaves across the territory. The The country is, is essentially governed by um, what are effectively corporate statelets, rather like, you know, pre-unification Italy. And lots of the government institutions have merged in some way with the old establishment. For example, the CIA has merged with the Library of Congress and has become a for-profit organisation. And there is this metaverse, this virtual world in which most people operate and live. And of course, they trade within this, quotes metaphors, um, using cryptocurrency, <laughs> which means that the American state is completely deprived of uh, tax revenues and has been driven to putting a rocket motor onto the printing press. And I can't remember the detail now, but something like a $100 billion note is enough to buy kind of a cigarette butt. So it's, so it's Weimar crossed with today. Does Mark Zuckerberg know the genealogy of the term? I often wonder. I mean, the thing about... Because <laughs> he could Google it. He, he, could, he, could, he could. I mean, I often wonder. But I, I think there is something about that novel. I mean, there's something about Stevenson's work generally because he's very insightful about technology. And he, many years ago, he wrote a truly beautiful essay with the title, In the Beginning Was the Command Line, which is absolutely beautiful. And I think it's where Snow Crash, the term, comes from. So he's very knowledgeable about technology and very insightful. And his books are wonderful, I think. And I'm sure they're very, very popular with geeks. And it's quite possible that that's where the obsession with it came from. Because what Stevenson was outlining in a way in in the novel was a plausible kind of version of what now seems to be envisaged. So the metaverse now is 
this week, next week, next month, the next big thing. It's everywhere. It's in every prospectus from people trying to raise a billion dollars in Silicon Valley. We probably all have a bit of a sense of what it means, whether dystopian or not. It's a sort of turbocharging of where we are now into a kind of virtual connectedness. And it feels to me like it's that version of the next big thing, which is just thinking to the max where the current trajectory would lead us, in contrast to some other possible next big things, which would be a radical shift. And we can talk about some of those in a minute, quantum computing, a genuine AI or AGI, artificial general intelligence shift. But this one, to me, feels like the fag end of the boosterism of the last 10 to 15 years. And it's not just boosterism, because it's transformed our world. But it's an attempt to sort of say, we're just going to scale this up to a point where it's as scaled up as it could be. We're not shifting to a new mode of how we understand technology might impact on our lives. It is it is still smartphones, virtual reality, machine learning, joined together and then captured by two or three corporations that made ridiculous amounts of money off the back of it. It's genuinely hard at the moment to take, to take it seriously because if you're a grown-up, so to speak, uh, then it, it sounds awfully like the idea that if we can build a comprehensive gaming platform, because remember, all the bits that go into the metaverse are, are in the process of being developed by the gaming industry. And the gaming industry is one of the biggest ones on earth. It's much bigger than movies, for example. And there's a sense in which one has incredulity at the idea that grown-ups, as it were, could envisage a future in which, say, five billion people spend their lives, more or less, all the time inside a virtual environment. And yet that seems to be the kind of driving concept behind it and on one level it does seem utterly absurd and on the other level it's conceivably possible given the kinds of money and effort that will go into building something like this and also given what we know about our fellow human beings which is that they seem to be rather partial to some kinds of nonsense. And the the big tech companies are investing massively in gaming. Yes. I mean, it's one of the things that has to be understood behind this, which is that's where the money's heading. Well, it is, first of all, a huge industry. And secondly, a week before this conversation, Microsoft, hitherto a sensible uh, technology company, paid $64.7 billion for a gaming company, Blizzard. And that's a metaverse bet. That's a metaverse bet for sure. The current boss of, of Microsoft, uh, Nadella, had, had said at one point that one of his goals was to build what he called the enterprise metaverse. So that's one rationale, perhaps, for that strange purchase, which may not be allowed by the regulators, but at the moment it's, it's on the cards. But the other thing could simply be a fear of missing out for more, because uh, here's one big company with $130 billion of cash that it's sitting on, and it's watching what um, Zuckerberg is raving about and thinks, well, hmm, just in case, maybe. Well, in that case, it's a bubble then. Indeed, it could be. Am I right in thinking that there are these two possible futures or two possible ways of thinking how this could go? And this is still that version of the winners of the last 10 years are controlling the market. They are controlling the narrative. And they are trying to extend what has worked well for them into the future. And the alternative is something potentially much more disruptive. And the alternative is less we're going to go further and further into a virtual version of our existence in which we migrate more and more onto platforms and, and into networks in which we can do the things that we would normally do in quote-unquote real life. 
The other version is much more disruption of quote-unquote real life. So one possible contrast would be genuine self-driving cars, I mean cars that could actually drive themselves, and what that would do to everyday life and all sorts of markets, but also basic infrastructure, having to create the systems, the real-world systems that allow that to function, versus the metaverse, which leaves all those real-world systems intact, sort of irrelevant, and just tries to move us onto their platforms? Or is it not as binary as that? I mean, I know I've made it sound a little bit too either-or. It's better to keep it as either-or for the time being, I think. In terms of something that's represented by, say, the prospect that there might one day be genuinely self-driving cars, I think that's quite a long way away, but there might be. It, it falls into the, into the realm of imaginable extrapolations. And the metaverse idea is you could represent it as a kind of unimaginable um, extrapolation. Because just to take one example, it's not entirely coincidental, just as Facebook is finally facing a kind of reckoning for the societal damage that it's doing, that Zuckerberg, its totally controlling boss, because he owns the, the controlling shares, he decides to make a switch. It's a pivot. He changes the name of the company. The name of the company is Meta, as in verse, metaverse and so on and the proposal or the idea behind this is to build a virtual world in which lots of the affordances of the real world that really bother tech companies like for example regulators uh, no longer exist or have any purchase now where's the ftc the federal trade commission in these conceptions of the metaverse because remember it's also intended to be a fully functioning economy it's not just i mean all kinds of stuff like games and uh, and whatever else people want to do online or virtually. But it's driving it behind it is the idea that this is going to be the next version of the economy. And does that include, we talked, I can't remember when, it both feels like a long time ago, and it probably wasn't that long ago about Libra, Facebook's alternative currency, uh, which seems like a passing fad, but obviously crypto is not a passing fad, or at least it isn't at the moment. Is that part of this vision? I mean, that didn't take off on its own. But move us to the metaverse and we'll trade using their well, just, just look currency. At it. Just take that idea and, and play it back because the Libra idea, which was Facebook's original idea of having a cryptocurrency that would be, you know, that, they, that would be become a dominant player in the, in, the, in the economic world. The real world, the tiresome real world of banks and regulators and politics have kind of trimmed that particular sale. But in the metaverse, there wouldn't be these nuisances that might interrupt corporate needs. So let's try and just pull a few of these things together. Here are a few possible next big things. So the one that I don't know where it went, the next big thing a few years ago was the Internet of Things. I still don't know, did that happen? <laughs> did it sort of happen and we didn't notice it? It was never quite announced, though one or two people announced it. Crypto, and not just crypto, but blockchain technology that lies behind it, is something that has got some real purchase and also serious amounts of money are being made and lost off the back of it. Artificial intelligence, the thing beyond machine learning, which may be some distance away. Quantum computing, which again, some of the big technology companies are investing huge amounts in, maybe some distance away. And a lot of this depends on what the sort of investment time horizon is, because it does feel a little like we're in a kind of lull. There was there was an explosion of activity and money being made off the back of essentially the, the big changes that 
came out of the first part of the first decade of this century. And then 2007 is a pivotal year, the iPhone year. And now a lot of people are sitting on big piles of cash. Some of them are just speculating with it on different cryptocurrencies. Some of them are investing for the long term in quantum or AGI. Are we at the moment in that slight lull where there are a lot of fads, a lot of people jumping on various bandwagons, but the big change, crypto is probably not it. The big change is somewhere away and that we're actually probably in a, a, a cyclical period where things are going to come and go. And maybe the Internet of Things was one of those things. The big shift, maybe a decade or more away. And we're in that lull. That's probably right, I think. But two things about that. One of them is the Internet of Things hasn't gone away. In fact, it has accelerated at an astonishing rate. And just to be clear to people, what we mean by the Internet of Things is essentially the sharing of data and information between machines without human beings. It's internet-connected devices which you don't notice. Alexa is one, yeah. Siri uh, and HomePods, everything that, that Amazon makes, the Amazon doorbell and all that kind of stuff. That's all Internet of Things stuff, and it's happening in spades. It's just that, I guess, the media have stopped being interested in it as much as they were before. And It's happening, but is it transformative? I mean, it's in, it feels incremental, but as it was sold to us in a way that we would suddenly notice we'd moved into a world where our machines were talking to each other and leaving us a little out of it. And sometimes when we ring a doorbell, we think... Are there human beings involved here? But it doesn't feel more extreme than that. But I'm aware there's a lot going on behind the scenes. There is a sense in which it is transformative, I think. And that is that there have been various moments in the evolution of the technology where its capacity to penetrate to our lives has, has had a step change. In the early days of the internet... It was about whether you had a computer at home. The, the transformative impact of, of the iPhone in 2007 was that it put the internet in your pocket. But there was always one barrier that the tech companies couldn't breach at the time, which was your home. And the significance of Amazon's Alexa, actually, I think, was that it was the device that broke through. And at each point, the threshold was crossed with a certain amount of public anxiety and public notice and media attention and so on. And after a while... We just got used to it, to the point where actually I think Amazon had a product, perhaps he still has a product, where it was a small little drone, an automatic drone inside your house that could from time to time go and check that there's nobody in the bathroom, that kind of stuff. And (laughs) it got to the point where, you know, we're so used to it that that they said, oh, yeah, yeah, that's it. Okay. So that's, that's a way in which that technology became more and more intrusive. And th- those are thresholds which were crossed without much in the way of... And now, and, Fanfare. And now it's got to the point where wearables, things you wear, that, uh, and you must keep them on when you're asleep because it's important to know what your sleep pattern is like. And it's important for some giant corporation somewhere in its data centres to know what your sleep pattern is like. Do you know what I mean? So, so there's, there's that sense in which we have walked sleeplessly <laughs> into a... Well, it's like being a sleepwalker in some way. That's what that's part. So, but but in that sense, the Internet of Things has happened and is significant, and it will get more. It'll get it'll get more uh, intrusive and more uh, comprehensive, and so on. But are the returns from it tailing off, or is there still this thought that the person who makes the most connections, having breached the outside the home, inside the home barrier, is? looking at a gold mine. There was that thought maybe two or three years ago. It was the next phase of competition and the network or the corporation that could connect more dots would clean up. 
Are we anywhere near diminishing returns on this? The best thing to keep in mind when, when thinking about this is the sigmoid curve. It's the one where, where it's like an S, mm. and, and at the top, it flattens out. When you get close to the top of a sigmoid curve, you can put a lot more investment, a lot more of effort, and it just gets a, a marginal gain. Now, we're with that with the smartphone. Mm. Smartphone has been a revolutionary transformation of our communications environment, and, and we have got up to the top of the sigmoid. And that particular curve is now flattening. And if you have an industry which is driven entirely by capitalist principles, then that industry is going to say, uh, mm, this is a problem, we need something else. We need something to start another sigmoid curve. And that's partly the moment we're in now. And there are different candidates. The metaphor idea is one, as you said. Crypto, it has become a kind of a cliché. Crypto means something profound and different. But crypto can mean three things. The first of those are cryptocurrencies, like Bitcoin. The second is the technology that underpins cryptocurrencies. It's called blockchain. And that's a significant, really significant technology. And the third thing that now slips in under the crypto uh, banner is something called Web3. And that's a foreseeable development, uh, although possibly not, not feasible. So, so there are three things here onto crypto. And what is Web3? Web3 is the conceptual third development of the World Wide Web. You can think of the web up to now that we've had in two stages. The first one, Web 1, Web 1.0, is what Tim Berners-Lee invented. It's it's the original uh, World Wide Web. Web 2.0 is what we had following the bust of the internet bubble in 2000, which is the kind of web that gave us social media. And again, we may be at the top of the sigmoid curve for that. Web 3 is a concept which is based on the idea that the glorious decentralization of the internet, as represented, we thought initially, by Web 2.0, has actually evaporated and instead it's been centralized effectively by the control of a small number of large tech companies. And the Web 3 movement is based on the idea that we could use a different kind of protocols to run a version of the web which would not be amenable to central control. Uh, And the technology for that would be, no surprise, blockchain. In the way that blockchain for its cryptocurrency advocates is a way to escape the central control of central banks. Web 3.0 for its advocates, blockchain is a way to escape the central control of the big technology corporations. Except the advocates for this have been very careful not to call it Web 3.0. That's why they just call it Web 3. So that then, there's so much we could talk about here because there's also quantum computing, which who knows, could be transformative, but maybe a long way off. There could be forms of AI that are mind-bogglingly disruptive and transformative, but feel like they're a long way off. But one of the things that connects all of these potential movements, aside from the huge amounts of money that are at stake, is the thought that there is a way out, whether it's the metaverse, whether it's blockchain, from the grip of institutions that have dominated the political landscape, for a hundred or more years, including the nation state. It's not just kind of Silicon Valley libertarians who are speculating on the possibility that we are at a potential shift away from forms of state control to something new. And yet we are still in that lull because that talk has been talked for quite a while now. And as you say, people come up with new currencies, new this, new that, and the grip of the state 
to me at least, still seems, if not secure, pretty pervasive. And states still do things that these companies can't. They do control currencies. They do invade countries. And we may be about to see a bit of that. They do still drive the regulation and control of pandemics. But of course, all of these things now happening completely dependent on the technologies that underpin what we all do all the time. But it hasn't shaken the grip of the state. And we are also living in a world where there are more than two, but two big models of how the state does this. One is the Chinese model and one is the American model. And so the American model is in its way much more laissez-faire and it allows these companies to do their own thing. But it's not as if the state has given up on trying to rein them in when they get out of control, at least in theory. The Chinese model is different. The Chinese model is much more of an exercise of control. They are both capitalist in their different ways. I mean, this is a huge question, but so one way of thinking about the future is a rivalry between these two models. There's the Western version, and that includes the European Union and others, but the Western version of periodic exercises of state control when this technology gets out of hand, and maybe that will weaken and weaken over time. And the Chinese version, which is much more directly interventionist. So that's one possible future that we'll see the competition between these two. The other more radical future is that we are still on the path between a competition that pits the state against the power of both the technology and the technology companies. And that's actually the big struggle here, that we are moving to a world where some people with wealth, some companies with wealth and power, unaccountable, irresponsible power, are starting to colonise the space that for 100, 200, 300 years was occupied as a monopoly by the state. That's a big question. I think it's a pretty good summary, though, in the sense that before we get to China, let's go back for a minute to the driving philosophies behind these quests that we're now seeing for a different way of doing things. The cryptocurrency evangelism, I think it has two components. One of them is, well, it's it's extreme libertarianism uh, of a kind which I think is always nonsensical, but... Nevertheless, there are people who, who take it who take it seriously. That's one. There's a kind of ideological drift. There's also a kind of a Hayekin drift to it as well, which is that this is some way of uh, realizing the fact that markets are the best information processing institution that exist, and the problem is that they're messed about by and controlled by states and by corrupt organizations and so on. That's one. But, and we should say for people who think Hayekian and libertarianism are the same thing, they're not. They're not because no. Hayekians are perfectly comfortable. In fact, they're aware aware of the necessity of the state. state. The state is the underpinning yeah. of this yeah. this information gathering yeah. machine which is called the market. But if you, if you read the discourses of conversations ab- about uh, about say blockchain um, lots of people will point out that the Satoshi memo which released the idea for blockchain more or less coincides with the fall of Lehman Brothers and the Lehman Brothers collapse being a token for the corrupt uncontrollable nature of financial capitalism and its untrustworthiness. It may be just a coincidence, and people are attributing causality to it, but nevertheless, it's a significant kind of coincidence. So so blockchain and the idea of cryptocurrencies finally becomes kind of serious at this moment when the Bitcoin idea emerges. There have been shots at it before. And that's a legitimate sort of interpretation of an attempt to use technology to combat the institutional control of organisations which are sanctioned by the state. I, I think myself that all of these current experiments that we're seeing, or current proposals that we're seeing, one way or another, they are about trying to free society and, of course, large corporations from the intrusive control 
of established institutions which are sanctioned and enabled by the state. Now, extreme critics of the metaphors will say another thing that's driving it is the desire to escape entirely from reality. There was a very funny uh, phrase recently used by Mark Andreessen, who's one of the key figures in this industry, in the sense that he was co-author of the, the Mosaic Browser, which was in 1993, the thing that really changed the internet into something that people could use. And then he became a very a very successful venture capitalist, and he's very noisy in general. Um, but he, he said at one point when there was a discussion about the fl flight from reality, he, he actually said, well, maybe reality is overrated. As far as I know, I was the only person who sat up to hear that. But nevertheless, you know, that's an interesting... Kind of, there's something there too. And you see that in computer gaming a lot. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And that, in a way, does stand in contrast with the view that what we're looking at is actually a struggle in reality between a Chinese model and a Western model. As it were, state rivalry is old school in those terms, isn't it? And that, that version of reality being overrated is it's both more pretentious and potentially more radical. The contrast between, so to speak, the Western approach and the Chinese approach is also really instructive. Part of the difficulty we have sitting here is we always view China through a kind of a condescending lens, and we haven't got over that yet. Um, for example, when Bill Clinton had the view that if the Chinese want the internet, they're going to have to have democracy and all that kind of stuff. And they, consistently they've been saying, actually, we want that bit. And we don't want the other bit, thank you very much. That still goes on. Now, the really interesting thing in the last year has been the way in which the Chinese state has been going for its dominant social media companies, which is really interesting, partly because it doesn't have the tiresome need to adhere to the rule of law that, that Western regulators have. But behind that drive to take these intensely profitable, very successful companies under control is the belief that actually this technology... This use of the technology is not innovative. It's basically just doing tricks on old technology, like the web. And what the Chinese state is worried about is that there's an opportunity cost for that. In other words, it's sucking all kinds of talent into these big tech companies when the talent should be devoted to working on real underlying technology, which is chip fabrication, which is uh, quantum computing, which is AI in all kinds of forms and the rest of it. And that's really interesting because it's a radical change from what happens here, where we're not bothered about the fact that every smart PhD in computer science wants to work for Facebook or... You know what I mean? We're not bothered by that. But they have sussed that there's something up here. The second bit of it is that they also know, and this is a really critical strategic issue for everybody, which is they simply don't have the infrastructure that they need to be able to fabricate chips at the kind of nanometer level that are now needed and there's only one place in the world that can do it and it's a company in Taiwan if 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 China really wanted to do something serious if they we took can out, see, we can see where that thought you is can going. see where it's going okay right but but the point is that that's a critical bit of the geopolitical rivalry around tech now it is about which states 
will have the next generation of the underlying technology in the way that the internet is our underlying technology. What's the next one? And it isn't smart startups doing tricks on the web. It isn't the, the, the hyper gamification of the world. So another way to put that, it's, and I think this is part of the condescension, the narrative about China and this technology is that, as you said, there was a naive view that somehow it would open up a oppressive regime. And the opposite has been the case, not just in China, that regimes that, that value extensive control of citizens and of the economy found that this technology is very useful. And so there's a sort of view that what this is is a manifestation of the sort of innate dictatorial tendencies of this way of doing politics. But the other side of it, seen from the Chinese point of view, is they've seen what this technology is doing to us. So it's creating huge pockets of unaccountable power and money. As you say, it's sucking talent in particular directions. It's corrupting education. I don't think it's, I don't think that's putting it too strongly. And it is destabilizing social fabrics. And it would be understandable if you looked out and saw that happening somewhere else to think, well, given that we've shown that there are forms of control that are possible, that you don't have to buy a libertarian or Hayekian or any other view that somehow this technology has a mind of its own and we just have to do what it wants as dictated by the market. It's therefore possible to think that you can have the benefits without those social costs. And so this isn't just about oppression. This is at least potentially about trying to remedy what we all recognise are the huge costs that we've borne over the last 20 years because of this technology. I don't really think this is going to happen, but I've for a while wondered, you know, we talk about China as a rival to the West, but there are very few politicians. There are politicians who are kind of suck up to the Chinese regime in, in Western Europe, and there are politicians who suck up to the Russians in, in Western Europe and in the United States. But the idea that anyone would, would make a case that the Chinese have got some of the fundamentals right hasn't happened yet. But it must be possible, as this rivalry develops, that people will look the other way around and say, maybe there is a choice here, that actually what the Chinese political system is showing is that what we thought was no choice is a choice, for better or for worse. It, it has huge costs, including huge political costs, because it is oppressive. We haven't got there yet, but it's possible, particularly if we have a very disruptive decade coming up. And we've heard, we've heard it a bit with climate change. You, you get that sort of sense in the West sometimes that maybe the Chinese are onto something, the Chinese regime, in relation to climate change, or maybe not. But not yet with technology, but it could come. It could come. And it's more radical as a possibility than you've hinted. Here's a story about myself, which can be cut. Okay. But I, won't be. I, I was a research fellow at a Dutch university in the late 70s. And one of my fellow visiting fellows at that institution was a very senior Russian scientist. He was a vice president of the Soviet Academy of Sciences. If you know anything about the Soviet Union, that means he was a really big cheese. And before he left, he, he, he was a very nice man. And we, I, I asked him if he'd like to have a drink before we, before we went. And I asked him if he had enjoyed his, his, his period. And, and he said he had enjoyed it very much. And I said, what will you miss? when you go back? And he said, oh, that's easy. I'll miss the photocopier. And I said, excuse me? And he said, well, what you have to know is that when I'm in Moscow, I spend maybe two days a week, two afternoons a week in a library copying stuff out by hand. Now, I'm not smart enough to have understood the significance of that, but I should have. The significance is that he's a very powerful, influential person in a society that has to control photocopiers because they're printing machines. In that case, the Soviet Union is doomed because it won't be able to manage the technology. Okay. Now, as I say, I didn't spot it, but in retrospect, I did. 
Now, spool forward to where we are now. We have a view about autocracy, and the view says that, and especially totalitarian autocracies, uh, which is that in the end, it can't be done. You can't manage a complicated society because you don't have enough information to manage it. That's the, that's the problem with autocracies, that always, that they don't have reliable knowledge of what's happening. My hunch is that the current Chinese regime has figured out that maybe the time has come when that comfortable assumption of the West is wrong. Because the level of surveillance that they have been able to build and the kind of systems they have constructed around them and the rest of it are such that they could reasonably think they might escape the autocrat's trap in the analogue days. But it's not inconceivable that they have come to that conclusion. You may remember many years ago, in 1972, I think it was, Salvador Allende became, was elected president of Chile, and he had the idea that they could actually do something useful by managing the economy using computing. And that was the basis of a big project which then folded. But they couldn't have done it because the computing capacity wasn't there, the data wasn't there, and all the rest of it. But spool forward to where we are now and where the Beijing regime are, and you could think, well... You know, that, that might not be a bad bet. Now, why is that significant? It's significant because we've moved from being a unipolar world after the collapse of the Soviet Union to being some kind of bipolar world. There are only two systems here as alternatives for a third nation, say, trying to think of where, we, where, where, where should we put our bets. The Russians are not, they're, they're not an alternative system. They're just gangsters with nukes, as it were. But the Chinese system is an alternative and it may be that just as happened in the 1950s, lots of unaligned states had to make a choice about where they were going to be. Something like that might, might emerge and it will be enabled by technology. And the Chilean story is instructive here because part of this is about time horizons. And there is another cliche, a patronizing Western cliche, that maybe the Chinese take a longer view. Maybe they don't. But as a Chinese civilization underpins Chinese politics in a way that Western civilization doesn't. But there's also a, a narrower time horizon question. So the Chilean story that Allende project failed and it ended in a coup. And the coup was then taken over by General Pinochet, who established a regime in Chile, which was Hayekian. I mean, explicitly, you know, Milton Friedman sent his boys down from Chicago and markets were opened up and it became a, a poster child for a kind of politics that we tend to call neoliberalism. And that was a 30, 40 year story. And you know, if, you, if you lived through that period, as we both have, I was only a child then, but you know, it's our lives, right? But if you take a slightly longer view, it's just a blip. You know, the idea that somehow the Hayekian neoliberal revolution is the way things were meant to be and the failure of this very early attempt to use computer technology to regulate a society is a sign that it could never work. You don't have to have a millennial-long Chinese perspective to think that 30 or 40 years isn't that long and experiments fail over that time frame. They don't just fail over two to three years. Who knows? But it feels like we have made a mistake in thinking that the last 30, 40 years are definitive of anything. So, so John, one last thing, a different kind of question, but I think it connects to all of these. And it's sort of about the stolen promise of this technology that you know, you've seen the, the trajectory of this and you've seen dreams come and go and you're still encouragingly hopeful, but also in some respects much less hopeful than you used to be. But one of the promises of this technology before it even existed, a kind of, you know, it's often associated with Keynes and Keynes's vision of 100 years hence, where we will have been liberated from so many forms of drudgery and toil and work. You know, the question will be not just how we'll use our leisure time, but how we'll use our time, how we can fulfill ourselves in ways that take advantage of the liberatory qualities of progress, essentially. 
So we've had extraordinary change and this technology has changed our lives. And I think I speak for most people when I say I haven't seen the payoff in terms of liberation from toil, drudgery, work and all the rest. Time, it's the cliche of our age. Time is the most precious commodity of all for all of us now. And we feel it slipping through our fingers. And all of us, I think, feel, there may be one or two exceptions, but most of us feel that it's getting worse all the time, that the preciousness of time, it's one, not, not in our power to control. And two, when we try and husband it, we lose it faster than ever. What happened to that? When is this technology going to give us what for many of us would have been the big payoff, which is give us control over our own time? I think the answer is when it becomes liberated from the economic system that is currently driving it. I mean, we, we have in, invented over 40 or 50 years, we've, we've invented a polity which is very attentive to the needs of corporations and less attentive to everything else. The point about the kind of uh, capitalism that drives the tech industry as well as everyone, it's unstable unless it grows. And the pressures that you feel, because, even though you have more and more of these tools, is, is partly because the system has a pressure built into it that speeds it up, that's part of it. If we wanted to change that, we would have to change the purposes that we assign to corporations. That we would have to break from the, the sole obligation to maximise shareholder value and to have something else as a set of different purposes that corporations would need to attend to. But it's, in theory, possible. One of the things that struck me a long time ago was to discover that the favourite essay of one of the co-founders of Google was Keynes's essay, the 1930s essay, about economic prospects for our grandchildren. It's conceivable that Keynes's idea about technology taking away the need for every one of us to work 40-hour weeks, that's certainly possible, for sure. Quite how far we could go is maybe arguable, but societies could get by and be just as prosperous, probably with everybody working two days a week, say. And then Keynes's question is, well, what would we do then? But there's a prior question to that, which is how would people who don't have work actually have the means to be, you know, creative or do other things? And that's a distributional question. If we get this wrong and we continue the way we are going, then we will have, in the end, extensive automation replacing work. And we won't have the replacement of the payment, the wages, the salaries that are foregone unless we have a way of redistributing income, which means that people are genuinely free in order to be more creative. Now, that might be an awkward question, because having, if we were to, to achieve that kind of utopia, we might find that you know, people just they're like, they're like computer gaming. and We just don't, we don't, don't know. But the point is that the requirement for that test to be valid is some way of redistributing the wealth that comes from the increased productivity that this technology can enable. So a different way of putting, I think, probably the same point is, I get this from Hannah Arendt, I talked about this on the History of Ideas series, but I think it's worth saying again. So her view is that we've become a society of consumers, essentially. And consumption is an essential part of human life. It's, it's the basis of human life, because consumption also just means eating enough to stay alive and so on. We are consuming creatures, and every day is kind of relentless consumption. And as soon as that stops, we die. But consumption is relentless that's the point about it so somehow and this is a sort of 30 40 year story the idea of treating us as primarily consumers has been associated with creativity you know, a, a consumer society is innovative and dynamic and it leads to rapid change and rapid progress and so on but her actual point is that it's antithetical to a kind of creativity which is durable 
because it's so relentless. And we are living in relentless consumerist societies. And even the metaverse, many of the things we talked about, the metaverse, crypto, even self-driving cars, quantum computing, tend to be predicated on us as choosing consumer agents, that the basis of human interaction is that we're given choices and we choose what we want, including what we want to consume. And her view is that that's the thing that we have to be annexed from. And in some ways, that's the hardest thing of all. You know, the, the old line people can more easily imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. But in some ways, to imagine us as something other than consumers, because it is so pervasive now, the Internet of Things, everything else. And it's dressed up in the language of choice. Uh, and choice is a good thing. But Hannah Arendt's point is that actually the most important kinds of choice, including political choice, are not things that we do as consumers. To treat us as consumers corrupts us. In my bleaker moments, I think that's the biggest barrier to overcome. And it also implies that a critical shift in the evolution of the societies we have now was the successful change in the interpretation of citizen to consumer. And that was a product of the advertising industry, the Bernays revolution in advertising, I think. Uh, and that's a, a critical bit of it. As you know, I'm a recovering utopian because I was an early believer in the potential of the internet to democratise and liberate and, and enhance the creativity of people and so on and so forth. I still believe it has that potential, but it wasn't realised. And one of the reasons we, those of us who subscribe to that kind of agreeable delusion, we underestimated the passivity of, quotes, consumers. You know, the... There was a time when people said, well, this is the end of TV because TV, you know, it encourages the development of the couch potato, the passive consumer of other people's content. And the Internet's not like that. You can make your own content, look at YouTube and so on and so forth. And guess what we have? I think if you look at, at the data traffic across the Internet in many Western developed countries at night, you'll find that the data traffic has a large chunk of it is Netflix. Instead of having sort of 50 or 100 channel TVs, we have now have kind of billion channel TVs and we still have couch potatoes. And when I was thinking, before we talked, I was thinking about, is there, is there a, a way of describing the metaverse in a, in a phrase? And my thought was, it's Martin Heidegger's dreamland. Because Heidegger somewhere says that the art of technology is to arrange the world so you don't have to experience it. And I think that was pretty accurate. You can read John every week in The Observer on these and many, many other subjects. John is also the co-founder of the Mindaroo Centre for Technology and Democracy. There's a very interesting website. Just go to mctd.ac.uk and you can find lots of the latest research on what technology is doing for and to democracy. Coming up on Talking Politics, we're going to be talking about Putin and Ukraine. We're going to be talking about the French presidential elections. We're going to be talking about Helen Thompson's new book. And we're going to be keeping an eye on British politics and the fate of Boris Johnson. Do join us for all of that. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. Thank well, this you. is so um, weird. What's oh, it's weird not having headphones in. Um, I just I don't know if I can remember how to do this in person, John. We're going to have to... I might sound very stilted. Hello. <laughs> Is this working? Is this... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, Calling London.